Scott Lucas, and this is World Unfiltered. Thank you very much for joining us uh, today for a discussion where I'm going to be a student, and I think all of you will be as well, and we're going to learn from Professor Zainab Alamdar about feminist foreign policy. One of the most important concepts in our 21st century world is we're trying to negotiate all these crises, all these conflicts, but also looking for possibilities and for opportunities. Is a feminist foreign policy a way that we can learn from, not just in Turkey, not just in the UK, not just in the United States, but in a world unfiltered? Professor Alamdar is a full professor of political science and international relations at Elkhorn University in Istanbul. There, she heads up the Faculty of Business and Administrative Sciences and also the Gender Studies Research Center. But she is very much a scholar of the world, an international scholar. She has served on the editorial boards of International Studies Perspective, Turkish Policy Quarter, Quarterly. She's taught international politics as well as gender and politics and women's movements. She's a visiting professor at the Center for Turkish Studies in the Mark Hatfield School of Government at Portland State University in the U.S. She's been one of the four leaders under 40 for the Next Generation Leaders Program for the Euro Atlantic Security Initiative at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington. She has been awarded the Next Generation Hereford Fellowship, where she spent her sabbatical. But there's also an international connection, which kind of makes it most special for me to be able to chat with her. And that is her doctorate in political, scientists from, uh, political science is from the University of Kentucky in the beautiful city of Lexington, Kentucky, which is where my mother and my aunt also did their uh, education at UK. So a big Kentucky welcome to Professor Alan Dar with this note that she has experience and she is a leader in talking about what gender equality might mean. Gender equality in Turkey, working with public and private actors and with international organizations, UN Women, World Bank and the European Union and civil society groups. And what really spurred me to want to talk to her today is she's the founder and director of the Women in Foreign Policy Initiative in Turkey. So let's find out a bit more. Professor Alamdar, thank you so much for coming on World Unfiltered. I wanna start with a basic question, which is just what is a feminist foreign policy? Uh, well, thank you. Thank you so much for this, you know, very lengthy welcome. Uh, I'm kind of uh, flattered and humbled by everything you said about me. They are true, but, you know, we women are usually not used to, you know, being read long, long biographies, uh, mostly. So what is feminist foreign policy? It is basically it's a shootout. It's a, it's a, it's a challenge uh, to the traditional international relations theories. So what, uh, what feminist IR theorists are trying to do is actually to challenge the language, the structure and uh, of the traditional international relations and also question, you know, write and ask the very, uh, very apt question of who wrote this, you know, who wrote this IR and uh, who are the actors and why are women so few in this whole international relations world? So what we are trying to do is, you know, first we challenge the language, you know, all this language that comes with power, anarchy, hierarchy, borders, uh, sovereignty. They're all related. They're all terms that are related with, um, that are related to men mostly, you know, this objectivity, this, you know, uh, this power 
So all of these concepts are very much male concepts that usually are not, you know, in our communal understanding of what gender is, are not usually, you know, considered female, let's say. So they're all concepts that are related to related to man and what, you know, how man should be in the, you know, in the community. Then we challenge, you know, the structure of this whole international relations and how we study. You know, we divide the domestic and the international. We divide the, you know, national and the international. And usually, you know, domestic is in the house, you know, where women work and international is outside the house where men work. So, you know, this distinction between the domestic and the international, the, 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 the national and the foreign is usually divides us again, whereas, you know, women are also subject to international policy and international policies uh, effects. And then we also ask about, you know, what is this difference between soft and hard politics? Where does the soft and hard come from, you know? So, um, so we also challenge this hierarchical nature, you know, where do you start? Like, is, is COVID less important than nuclear war? We saw that, you know, uh, all of us are cooped up uh, in our homes for the past, you know, almost a year now. Uh, and apparently health is as important as, you know, nuclear weapons. So, uh, and it, affects the economy as well. So, uh, so these types of questions that, you know, feminist international scholars ask, and we, and, you know, we say that this is, it, it is actually restraining for us. It puts, you know, it puts cages around us. If we try to understand international politics by leaving aside the very, uh, you know, the very concepts, the very uh, theories, the very methodologies that we developed in all these, in all these, you know, duplicities. So one, once we juxtapose, you know, domestic and foreign, you know, soft and hard issues, then we don't really understand this, you know, complex nature of international relations. And also, lastly, we also ask, you know, where are women in all of this? You know, where are we during wars? Where are we during peace? Who wrote this history? You know, um, who, um, where? You know, where are the nurses? Where are the caretakers? Where are the female fighters? Where are the female soldiers? Uh, where do we stand in the, you know, where are the female engineers? Uh, where are the workers who were actually producing in the, you know, armament industry during the World War II? So, you know, these types of questions we ask. And then we realize that, I mean, these questions, you know, started to be asked in 1980s. But it kind of became a little, I don't want to say popular because, you know, these types of questions are never popular, but more people started to be interested in these issues, especially with the end of the Cold War, because we realized that, well, with the concepts we have, we can't really understand international relations. It's not the, you know, black and white uh, world that the, uh, that the Cold War actually, you know, portrayed, was portrayed to us. So it's, it kind of became clear that we need to find, you know, new definitions for how the world works. And mostly female scholars, of course, I'm not saying that, you know, all the female scholars of IR are feminists. That's not the truth. I mean, I wish they were, but they're not. But also, um, you know, so we started asking these questions and try to understand, you know, the world in a better way, which is already much more complex than those, you know, juxtapositions that we put uh, within the IR terms. And, you know, now it's become a little bit more interesting, I think, a little bit more uh, interesting to the wider audience, let's say. It was always interesting to us. 
but it became a, a little bit more interesting to the wider audience, especially after the economic crisis, because mm. you know men realized that uh, women are important <laughs> and uh, and they need us somehow. So that's it. Now a lot of people are talking about feminist foreign policy, and um, we can go to the more you know details and uh, and uh, nuts and bolts, of course. But you know, just to give you a brief description, I hope I was clear enough. Well, very clear. But that but that raises a basic question for me because you mentioned sort of objectivity as one of these traditional concepts. But mm -hmm. isn't isn't objectivity good? Isn't it good that we're objective? Or, or am I missing something here? <laughs> no, of course. It's wonderful if we are objective and rational, but this is the thing. I mean, we this whole objectivity in terms of how it relates to the IR theories does not really give us the whole picture in, you know, for example, how the decisions are made. You know, uh, can you say that, you know, Trump has been objective in uh, in his in his decisions, or you know any other you know world leader is, is objective in their decisions. I mean, you know all these types of prejudices that are tied to our gender roles. You know that women are emotional and men are not. I mean, okay. during the you know during the last couple of years, we are seeing a lot of men cry on the bench. So <laughs> apparently, that's not true. So so that is what I mean by you know, basically putting that uh, burden of objectivity on men, but it's right. never And almost the, the illusion of objectivity, that exactly. they will be objective and rational and, right, okay, gotcha. Well, okay, so let's talk, so you also mentioned power. Mm -hmm. So is it the case that we shouldn't be using the word power or using the concept of power or that we should rethink the concept of power and how we deploy it? Of course, you know, there are very different ways of defining power, of course, you right. know, if you only define power in terms of military strength or, you know, in terms of the, in terms of, you know, how many tanks you have uh, in your army or only the, in the economic terms, in terms of, you know, how many factories you have, mm -hmm. of course, I mean, the classical realists were already aware that that is not mm -hmm. going to work. But, you know, you have to also keep in mind that morale of the, uh, of the soldiers, for example, are very important during war. You know, power can be defined in many different ways. There are feminist discussions of power, which are actually very much like the, you know, very classical realists sometimes as well, in terms of, you know, power is the ability to change someone's ideas without, you know, uh, making them know that they're actually changing their ideas. So it's basic diplomacy as well. So, so of course, you know, we can go into the, you know, theoretical underpinnings of many of those, but it's just, you know, uh, questioning all these, you know, um, I would say, you know, not only assumptions, but prejudices about, you know, what men have and what women have. So, so when Joseph Nye, of course, creates this notion of soft power, and it becomes like a buzzword for everyone in the past generation, does soft power begin to get to grips with some of the issues you're raising, or is it just another way of cloaking the traditional way we think of power in a predominantly male domain? That, that's a very good question. I mean, maybe he was making way uh, into, you know, reconceptualization of power, just like, you know, the feminists would, would do afterwards. But, well, okay, well, let me go a bit further, because what strikes me is, is this is what I always had a problem with with Nye is he says, okay, it's soft power, but it's the power to persuade others to do what you want them to do. Mm -hmm. And and that to me is not really a very engaging way of power. You know, that you should be thinking of dialogue and partnership and cooperation. So it struck me that soft power 
was a little bit of that illusion that you talked about. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's still power by a few, just getting others to agree with them, right? And, and I assume that's not where you're coming from. Oh, no, not at all, of course. Uh, I'm also, you know, with, uh, I also agree with you, of course, in terms of, you know, it's, it's the ability to negotiate, to, you know, uh, but it's also, I mean, some of the negotiation also comes with, uh, you know, getting someone to do what, <laughs> what you want them to do as well. And, you know, mothers are usually very good at that too. So. Okay, all right. So that helps me out with a few of the, of the concepts. But it, again, let me ask you a basic question because it's, it's just one that I think may be naive, but it comes to me and that is with a feminist foreign policy, are we being gender essential here? That a feminist foreign policy really is something that therefore involves women's in positions of power, uh, prime ministers, presidents, military positions, di diplomatic positions, or can a man pursue a feminist foreign policy but of course they could um okay. you know i i really don't want to be you know gender you know an essentialist here um right. and i'm not one of those you know um i mean of course we cannot put all feminists in the same or all women or all men in the same boxes as well so everybody is unique and everybody has their well you know individualistic properties way of behaving but of course feminist power does you know feminist uh, foreign policy does not mean that you know only women can actually apply that and i mean i think i kind of alluded to that like for example not all you know, not all the female IR scholars are actually feminists, but, you know, most feminist IR scholars uh, are female. So it's, uh, so that's the difference. Mm -hmm. But of course, you know, any man or any, you know, um, any gender can actually, you know, challenge this traditional approach to the, uh, to the, to foreign policy. And, and the main point there is that this, you know, blindness of uh, international relations uh, to women and also juxtaposition of women versus men or you know the all these issues you know soft versus hard you know all these these duplicities and it's very apparent that it doesn't work this way you know the world doesn't work this way there are more gray areas than we can ever uh, you know imagine so i mean one thing maybe that can be said you know this is this has been a big question in the literature as well in terms of for example representational women and we were talking you know like the, the more women you know in the parliament let's say will, will that mean you know better policies for women which you know we don't have really any i mean we have some support for that for that in research but you know not enough so it's actually more important to have some substantive representation so women who are actually aware of women's rights who are actually, you know, who, who actually would like to fight for women's rights, who would actually put women's rights to the core of their, you know, agenda, uh, are the ones who are actually going to, you know, help women in their countries, but it's not going to be, or, and this can be men as well, you know, a, a male parliamentarian can also be the champion of women's rights. And we have, you know, examples like this. So, so substantive representation or, subs, you know, doing this feminist work with the idea of doing a feminist work is actually more important than actually talking about it or, you know, just being a female saying that, oh, I'm feminist, but not really, uh, you know, following the ethics of feminism. I 
that's really interesting to me, this question of representation, because it, it strikes me that you're talking about this, this really has to be an interaction of language and system and individual that we're talking about here. So let, let me test that a bit, sort of like in application. Would it be, I mean, the first women leaders that we think about that I think of, there might be a Golda Meir in Israel, there might be a Margaret Thatcher here in the UK, uh, Indira Gandhi in India, would it be fair to say that this is not necessarily a feminist foreign policy that's implemented by these women? And if that's the not. case, <laughs> so if that's the if that's the case, can you help us out when you might see the first breakthrough, not only in talking about a feminist foreign policy, mm -hmm. but in terms of seeing this in application? You know, did it appear through a particular leader or a particular activist group or, or on a particular issue? When did we first see it? Mm -hmm. Well, of course, I mean, the first way that it started, actually, you know, that like it came to our lexicon was in, you know, late 2014, when Margaret Mostrom, the, the uh, Swedish uh, foreign minister, said that we are going to pursue a foreign po feminist foreign policy. And everybody was like, what in the world is feminist foreign policy? So it was this, it was, you know, giving, so Sweden, for example, shaped its international aid in such a way that the international aid that it was providing was already, was only, was mostly going to go to uh, projects or programs that uh, encourage women's participation, or, you know, that would, that would go to women's organizations. But it was not only women's organizations or women's emancipation or women's participation or anything, but also it was going to go to uh, development projects which would actually benefit women, women more. So, for example, I mean, access to clean water. That's, you know, one of the problems of girls and mothers in, in unfortunately, still most places in, of Africa or it was going to be, you know, transportation issues. You know, girls could not go to school, not because they didn't want to, but because they couldn't, you know, walk, uh, you know, really long ways uh, to school. So these types of things. So basically what we call, you know, mainstreaming gender policies in every type of policy. So in every type of policy, thinking with this in mind, you know, is this beneficial for, for, gen for, uh, for females? Uh, is this beneficial for girls? Is this beneficial for women? Or how can this project or program can actually benefit uh, girls and women? So, um, you know, inter interjecting that idea and, you know, not thinking about the community uh, as composed of only of men would actually get us uh, to, a feminist, to a feminist policy. And this is actually very, this is actually much easier uh, to think about in regional and local circumstances. Mm -hmm. So for example, think about uh, designing a park, you know, resi designing a neighborhood park. And usually the care responsibility is on the mother or, you know, daughters or, you know, uh, usually the female, uh, female member of the family. And imagine that a male representative of the in the municipality is sitting down in this, you know, in this big room and thinking about how to design a park. Well, he's never taken the stroller to the park. Uh, he's never taken the old, you know, his old father to the seaside. Uh, you know, so he doesn't really know that, you know, when you once you're pushing a wheelchair, you know, you are actually getting through these, you know, tough parts of the sidewalk. Uh, because he never experienced that or, you know, he never thought that, you know, he should, you know, push the stroller in such a way that when the park was dark, you know. So these types of, you know, very simple things that comes from the daily life of women, just because they are the care caregivers, are unfortunately not very apparent 
to most men who are in the decision-making positions. So it's just, you know, this experience, this difference of experience that, you know, enlightens the policy that makes the, that politics different. So in other words, in the domestic and the regional and international, they intersect by providing these basic services, by working with these spaces. I see that very much in development, but how would we, before you get to development, sometimes you have to get through conflict, right? So from dealing with trying to deal with displaced persons camps, for example, in Syria or dealing with the Yemen conflict at this point, how does a feminist foreign policy approach conflict to give us that type of space for development? The UN Security Council has a famous resolution that which of which we celebrated the 20th year and it's called 1325 so it's a you know security council resolution so all the un members should actually abide by it but only 86 countries uh, have national action plans to implement it and the 1325 says that you know before conflict during conflict and after conflict participation of women in the decision making mechanisms is is particularly important so as I've given in this, you know, municipality example, the women's, uh, women actually experience the conflict differently. So, you know, women are usually the ones who are left behind uh, during the war. Uh, women are usually the ones who, you know, have to, again, uh, do the, all the care jobs uh, after the war. They are the ones who, who are stuck with the children who has to go to, uh, who has to go to school. So, you know, these types of things. So once we, once we include women in those decision-making mechanisms, then we realize that, you know, well, they, they touch, uh, you know, they touch the subjects that, you know, men basically did not even think about. So it's not just this participation, of course, it's also the protection of women. I mean, conflict affects women differently. I mean, what we saw in, you know, Rwanda, Bosnia, you know, women's bodies are sites of war, you know, uh, men rape women because it's a good way of fighting it doesn't only it doesn't only dehumanize the woman or you know you know messes up their whole life but it's also you know a very good way of making you know the, the male soldiers basically lose all their morale that you know that I was just talking about so you know protection of women and uh, and girls during conflict is particularly important and after conflict as well what else then there's the um, there is this, you know, if there's a country in which, you know, women's rights were never the issue or, you know, were, were never something that was, you know, prioritized, mm -hmm. it's also some type of a window of opportunity, you know, if post-conflict you can actually rebuild that place and with the women's rights in there, then, you know, that's a, that might give us some type of benefit in terms of reforming the conflict. So that's another thing, again, that 1325 is also uh, interested in. And lastly, it's the prevention of conflict, because sometimes boys like to fight. And, um, and you know, we can actually, I mean, mothers and sisters and, and daughters and, and lovers can usually can stop them. You know, we have a lot of stories and history from the Greek mythology to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, finding different ways of doing this. But, you know, getting women into the business of also preventing conflict is also another way of, of you know, incorporating women into this, you know, women, peace and security agenda. So there are different ways of, you know, participation, protection of women, you know, getting women to the peace tables.
and getting women in the pro prevention business uh, are also ways in which you know conflicts uh, can actually be solved and this is true for the you know for the examples that you've given for yemen for syria for Syria, there were women uh, peace uh, makers at some point in the in the very first mediation uh, programs, the mediation meetings. Then women kind of disappeared. So you mentioned um, the ambitions of the UN, or at least the the statements of the UN. You've mentioned Sweden as a practical example in terms of implementation. Are you seeing implementation at, from others, either through activist groups or through particular national governments? or international initiatives. Can you point us to anything else that provides a hopeful sign? Oh, exactly. I mean, it was actually, um, you know, it kind of became popular, <laughs> as I said before. It's, uh, of course, Canada took up on it. And they also wanted to uh, do their international aid with the women's, or, um, you know, through the women's organizations. And then there is uh, there is even uh, countries like Mexico, but what Mexico does as feminist foreign policy is actually just to increase the number of women in the foreign ministry, which is again, a good thing. France and even New Zealand, I think they are also talking about feminist foreign policy. And then we do have international organizations and that is very important. You know, NATO actually brought about uh, their own 1325, this, you know, UN Security Council resolution National Action Plan as 1325, and they have a special representative on 1325. The Union has its own 1325 Action Plan, um, and you know, with the uh, with the head of the Commission being a woman, Ursula von der Leyen, and you know, she kind of transformed the Commission as a more uh, you know gender equalitarian place. And uh, so they do have, European Union now has a program, uh, an action plan actually on, uh, on how to, you know, integrate more women in this, in women peace and security agenda and in EU's foreign policy as well. Then we do have organizations such as the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. I mean, I think all these, you know, international organizations taking up this issue is particularly important. Although, I mean, our belief in international organizations has been kindled a little bit during the last years. But then we also do have, you know, leaders are talking about this a lot. You know, we look at Joe Biden's cabinet and now we see that there are a lot of women all around the place. So, um, you know, a feminist doesn't have anything but the hopeful, actually, <laughs> to be hopeful, actually. So. Well, I, okay, I'm going to ride with that then for one more question for our viewers. And that is, you know, as we've all gone through the pandemic mm -hmm. in the past year, has it opened up the space for us to reconsider our use of language and the way that we present issues? Mm -hmm. In other words, out of this tragedy we've encountered, does it propel the possibility that you're thinking about in the way that we move between the domestic and the international? Well, I hope so. <laughs> I mean, it depends. Unfortunately, you know, we have seen how much, how much it depends on the leadership. You know, we have seen very different types of leaders. We have seen, you know, formidable female leaders who were, you know, great at controlling the governing, uh, uh, managing the pandemic. And then we have seen, you know, the male leaders who were, uh, you know, acting very differently uh, than most female leaders uh, in terms of the pandemic. One of the other things that happened to um, 
you know, women during the pandemic was that, you know, we were cooped up in our houses and unfortunately um, violence against women actually increased. There are studies on that. Since women are mostly the caregivers, you know, there are a lot of, you know, health, uh, um, health workers who are women. So they were actually adversely uh, uh, affected, of course. And, you know, we had to stay home, take care of the kids, take care of the family, you know, worry about our uh, children and, <laughs> and do everything at the same time. So, I mean, there are even studies that, you know, uh, female professors actually published less than male professors during the COVID-19. But in terms of thinking about, you know, how these lines are bl blurring um, and how this, you know, hierarchy between the issues is, is dissolving, I'm not sure whether, you know, the, the old generation gentlemen are actually aware of this. Uh, but I'm very hopeful about the younger generation because there's a new, you know, there, there's a new understanding. The world is going to be completely different and, and we are not going to go back to the old uh, ways. It's, it's, I, I think it's very clear and I would like to believe that. So I think for the future generations, and I think there is a more, there's much more interest in gender. There's much more awareness in terms of sharing, uh, sharing the work, uh, sharing the care work at home. I think like we are going to think more about collaborating with each other, which, you know, COVID clearly showed us that there's no other way of dealing with these issues. Thank you. I could go on and on, but we'll treat this as an introduction. I mean, there's issues like climate change we could be talking about, exactly. issues like education that we could be talking about. But I'm going to ask you if you would come back and rejoin me on World Unfiltered in a few months time to see how we're doing. Uh, both in terms of education on what a feminist foreign policy is, but then let's talk about these issues in a bit more detail. Would you be willing to do that? Oh, definitely. With pleasure. Thank you. Professor Zainab Aladar, thank you so much. Thanks to you, the viewers of World Unfiltered. A reminder, you can always keep track of us on Deep Dive Politics with our various initiatives, including a forthcoming one that will intersect with this, which is a new program called Women in Politics. Stay tuned, but for right now, Stay safe, stay sane, take care.